Well, good evening, everybody. This is Jeff Morton and Deanna Dye. Hi, Dina. How are you? Doing well, Jeff. How are you? I'm doing fantastic. It looks like we're uh, we're going to make this thing work tonight and have a wonderful evening. And uh, folks, we'd like to welcome you both, all of you, to the show. We're happy to be here. This is our second week of returning to Eden, and we are looking forward to uh, quite a bit of uh, fun and information and dialogue and the whole nine yards. And so, Dina, tonight we want to kind of jump right into setting up the foundation of why we're here in the first place. And so uh, I'll let you go ahead and uh, and start preparing our audience for the journey we're all about to take. Well, thanks, Jeff. And, and I think this is going to be quite a journey. I'm sure we're going to touch on things that people aren't familiar with, um, our goal is to kind of get you outside your box uh, with all our preconceived ideas. Um, sometimes we, we hold tight to those things that we're familiar with, and it's sort of uncomfortable to let go and to maybe hear something that, that doesn't maybe at first sound all that familiar. Hopefully through this, it'll, it'll begin to make sense. My goal really is to present folks uh, with the the ancient culture, the context, and the language that is the Bible. Um, the Bible is an ancient document, and I think we forget that a lot of times. Which isn't to say that that doesn't we can't make application for today. Because, for example, the Psalms are probably the greatest expression of the human heart ever, and that's one of the places we always go to when we're, uh, you know, in distress or sad or sorrowful or joyful or whatever. But again, if we don't understand things in its cultural context, I, we can sort of veer off. So uh, that, is, that is the message that I want to communicate as we go through this. Lots of times with, um, the, in the ancient world, terms that we use today, for example, love and faith and kindness, are very abstract terms to us. I mean, what exactly is faith? And so it ends up being in the emotional realm so part of what we're talking about here is getting it out of the emotional realm and figure out what it meant to the folks back then. So typically, those three examples I gave, love, faith, kindness, were actually covenant terms, and they had a very concrete meaning. So, you know, love is sort of vague, <laughs> emotional to us, but it was Really, in the ancient world, it was a, the the loyalty aspect of the covenant. So um, that's just one example, and and there are many. I'm I'm trying to get us to to stop imposing our own modern meaning on the text. So if we can just kind of let go of all the stuff and approach the scriptures in the way that they're being communicated to us by the ancients, then hopefully, um, hopefully, some things that maybe haven't made sense will make sense. Um, do you want to comment on this, Jeff? Well, I was just thinking, you know, modern Christianity focuses on modern Christianity, and we kind of look at the Bible from our viewpoint, our perspective, and what our show is hopefully going to entertain and, and really kind of just rediscover, so to speak, is how we have to kind of look at the uh, the information from a, not from a visual aspect, but from a hearing in other words, in the ancient world, they didn't have video. They didn't have all this stuff. These are kind of mute points, but we need to realize and we need to talk about it because when we look at certain passages, and I love how you used the word love because love meant loyalty it, to family members. It meant, are you loyal? I'm reminded of when uh, Yeshua said to Peter, 
uh, do you love me three times? Well, that translation is actually talking about being loyal. Are you loyal three times? And of course, we know that Peter the very next day was disloyal. And so it kind of changes the continuity or the context of what we're talking about. And what returning to Eden is all about, as Dean is talking about, is going back and looking at the world through their lens. Uh, and, and instead of like, um, in our world, we kind of see everything from a, from a, from a theological viewpoint. None of those things existed. And that's kind of where we want to, uh, set the foundation of how we move forward from that location to where we are today. And that's what return to eating. Returning to Eden is all about, uh, Dina. Yeah, and you know, like I mentioned earlier, we we have a tendency to find our box and get in it and and stay in it. (laughs) Don't we ever? (laughs) One of the things I I know those of uh, those of people listening recognize that in Hebrew thinking, things are in cycles and patterns. So, and clearly, we're always looking for those patterns. The problem is when you take a pattern. And you move past that, you turn it into a doctrine, which then becomes a theology. So my goal is to, like, get to the pattern. That's the pattern. And let's not worry about trying to take that pattern and, and fit it into a into a doctrine. The key to all of this remains the kingdom. And we want to understand what the kingdom meant to the ancient world and how we can make application for that today. The ancient world looked at everything in terms of kingdom. So king in the ancient Assyrian world or the Akkadians and Sumerians or whatever, they were always the king, for example, over the city-state looking for ways to take more land you know, and spread out his kingdom. And this is this is very much the, the ancient world. We don't really look at it that way. And, and we have cer- certainly have our sovereign states, but, you know, we're not looking at taking, um, some are, but in Western civilization, we're not looking at taking over, you know, another state. But they were always looking at that. And so there was always this thing going on between these kings. So the ancient world perspective on kingdom is essential because it all fits into the narrative of what God is trying to communicate to us about kingdom. And uh, one of the things I also wanted to mention, because we live in an emotionally based culture, we, we view everything through the lens of emotion. And so we judge its truth by how it feels. And this is not at all how the ancients looked at things. Their viewpoint was always function based. Did, you know, what was the function and purpose of whatever it was they were doing? And one of the things we can kind of go off track with the emotion thing because, especially when we're talking about the Holy Spirit being led of the Holy Spirit, the way we identify it, of course, is we're being led by our emotion because these, the Spirit, it, this feels right. So I think I'm going to follow it. And it's kind of a dangerous thing. The the ancients didn't really view the Holy Spirit in that regard. In fact, the Holy Spirit was seen as being wisdom, something very concrete. So you could look at um, a situation and through the, the lens of wisdom and knowledge and the ability to discern, you would make a decision. So that's just one distinction. Uh, would you like to add something there? Well, I was, I was just thinking about... Um even with with Moses, if we if we consider Moses and how he's trying to communicate to a people that have been enslaved for uh, numbers of years, when we're talking about the Genesis account through his eyes, oftentimes what will happen in our culture is we're in the garden, 
we're we're actually listening to a conversation taking place in the garden when in fact Moses is relating a story to the audience that he had 2000 years later and so when we start thinking that way we have to kind of discard some of the emotion in order to understand the content and I do this all the time I'll I'll I'll, I'll ask the question uh I'll pick something out that Moses wrote and say Genesis 1 or Genesis 2, and I'll ask the person, who was the first group of people that heard that? And almost inevitably, they'll say Adam or Eve, and I'll go, actually, it was the children coming out of Egypt. And the paradigm shift begins to occur when Uh they start thinking that way, and that's kind of the way our program is going to unfold. We want the paradigm shift to occur And you'll find that it'll occur continuously and continually as we look at the the words of what we're trying to interpret from the lens of the people who wrote it. And that's really, I can't stress this enough, for our first real show here, you have to, in order to understand why we're here, kind of put that lens on and, and kind of set your filter. We all have a filter. Have to set it aside as we try to bring this conversation to life. That's really, uh, really where I, I think we have to, we have to do that first. So yeah. Dina, I think you're yeah. absolutely right. Yeah. We, you know, and we, we tend to make our interpretation of the scripture based on our modern events. And right. this is really to the last two or 300 years, especially. And this is problematic because I believe it can often lead us into error we especially see this uh, in the area of prophecy. This this can be kind of dangerous. Get <laughs> into some serious prophecy here, but really, we have to we have to understand the period of time in which the prophets wrote and what was going on historically. What was the culture and language, and how were they uh, how were they explaining what was going on? One of the main things you see in the ancient world is they don't. They don't describe their world the way we do in scientific terms. They describe their world using ideas and and a representation of that idea. So what you end up in scripture with is a lot of idioms, uh, symbols, metaphors, all that stuff that you might recall back from English language in high school or something. But this is the way they saw their world, and they didn't describe their world the way we did, the way we do, you know, we'll look up in the sky and go, well, there's the sun, the moon, and the stars. Well, they might, uh, they might describe it in a completely different way. I can't think of anything off the top of my head, but maybe, maybe you can. I think I mentioned, I'm not sure if I mentioned it last week, but, uh, John Walton, Dr. John Walton, uh, from Wheaton College had made the analogy that, uh, you look at the Hubble telescope, look through the telescope, everything is in terms of, of science. You're going to look at distances and what substances and what things are made of. But then you have somebody like Van Gogh um, who uh, painted the starry night, and then he gives us a visual of what the heavens look like with his sort of <laughs> modern uh, a, a, a modern design of the heavens and the sun and the stars and all that sort of thing, and they don't look anything alike. But he's interpreting what he sees. And so the ancients interpreted what they saw using language that is symbolic and metaphorical. Well, they would have also, when you speak about the Hubble, they wouldn't have seen the Earth as a globe with a little pretty blue marble. They would have seen 
the the world of the gods, which was above, then they would have seen the the earthly realm, and then they would have recognized the underworld, and that would have been largely how they came to understand their existence in the world. They would not have known about the nine planets. They would not have known. Uh, well, they, you know, they might have seen those things, but I, I don't know about you, Dina. But when I'm looking up the sky, I can't see Mars, and so I I got to believe that those people back then didn't either. And so for their reality, we have to kind of look at what they were thinking about when they looked up at the stars. They were thinking about gods uh, yeah, until, until monotheism came into play. But for the most part, they were thinking about gods and they were wondering what the gods were doing. And they were also servants to the god. They didn't, they didn't have relationship, which right. is what the Hebrew world kind of introduced. And we're, we're going to be talking about all of those things. But we have to look at what they saw because that. Here's really the bottom line. For reasons that are yet to be explained to us, the creator of the universe who is responsible for each one of us in his divine wisdom set into motion a series of events beginning in Genesis 1 with Moses. And so we have to understand that he used that particular time, 3,800 years ago roughly, to begin to tell the story of the creation of what, I would say, and uh, some of you, <laughs> you're going to have some paradigm shifts here, but the creation of the first temple in time, and we're going to talk a lot about those subjects and those things. But Moses is talking about something that's very familiar to the world he lived in with the people he was talking to. We yeah. have to establish that. Amen. Well, and you mentioned, and I, you know, we'll be talking about this in more detail as we go through the future programs, but the concept of Heaven and earth and the sea or the underworld is mm -hmm. essential. It's absolutely essential. And, of course, we see Moses uh, talking about this. We see it in the Ten Commandments, even in uh, the Fifth Commandment with the Sabbath. It talks about God ruling the heavens and what's in them, the earth and what's in them, the sea and what's in them. And this idea of these three spheres <clears throat> is what held, they, they saw them, uh, they saw these three spheres held together by a, a pillar or a mountain. It was the vertical axis that, that held it all together. Now, in the ancient world, you'd have your god who would be a ruler over one sphere. And so the difference that was being emphasized is that god, our god is the ruler over all three spheres. And they, right. the ancients never saw that. And so this is constantly reiterated in the scriptures. You can read about it in uh, Psalm 146, Nehemiah 9, I think, 9 or 6, I can't remember. Uh, and and I, as I mentioned in the Ten Commandments, the, the emphasis of our God being a ruler over those three spheres. And we, so we don't look at those three spheres. As, and, and those three spheres are all part of a temple construct. And we, we don't look at it that way. But I know as as our listeners will read the Bible, they'll recognize the, that discussion. In fact, we have it even in, in the book of Acts, in Acts three, or Acts four, and Acts fourteen. Talks uh, there's a, a quote in there that it, that it's made referring to the heaven and earth and the sea and everything in it. And the book of Revelation, Revelation fifteen, also talks about the same thing. So this is absolutely essential to understand this. Well, you know when I was. I was looking at something, um, I'm trying to find it now, but I was in Second Chronicles, and I was, something you had said uh, when we were talking uh, off the air, uh, and I started thinking about the patterns, 
and and most of you folks that are that are you know restoring your your understanding to the Torah, reconnecting. I like to say reconnecting the gospel to the Torah, or reconnecting the scriptures back to Israel. Yeah, we will get this. But I was reading in Second Chronicles, I think it was chapter seven, about the dedication of the temple, where Solomon was actually in the seventh month, and right. he went through. And I'm going as I'm reading that, I'm seeing the creation story through Moses' eyes. I'm, they're like parallel. And so I'm going, you know, as we talk about this, you're going to find that we're going to talk a lot about the temple that the father built and, and, and things of this nature. <laughs> I'm not going to give too much away, but really I'm seeing a dynamic in what Solomon was doing in the very same thing that we read about in chapters one, chapters two, chapters three, and chapter four of what Moses recorded. So their world they wouldn't have not understood what each other was writing about. And that's what we need to grasp as we return to Eden. And absolutely, you know, the Bible is seamless from Genesis to Revelation. I mean, we right. all know that, but this is the thread. So bottom line is uh, this this constant uh, recreation, if you will, as you just mentioned. Ultimately, Yeshua came to uh, restore creation. Bottom line, that was his ministry. Of course, he's mediator between God and and uh, the people, but he came to restore creation. So everything through the Bible is all about restoration of creation. Right. And then it finds its fulfillment as we get into the Gospels and the Epistles. So, and this is key because the, the Bible begins in Genesis chapter 1 with the creation, which is a temple. And so we have the temple, it's built, it's destroyed, it's built, it's destroyed. We see this mm -hmm. over and over again. We even see Yeshua talking about his own body. Destroy this temple in three days, I will rebuild it. So the message is through the building and rebuilding of the house of God, be it physical or in the case of Messiah, is all recreation language. And in particular, we find this in the um, the genealogies, those those names that we, you know, our eyes roll back in our head and we go, oh, Genesis 5. <laughs> Who cares, right? I can't read another one of these things. But if you can approach these genealogies as recreation language and that they're important because it's establishing a kingship from beginning to end, hopefully that, you know, that'll help you a little bit. But again, it, it's all about the restoration of creation. Well, I, I'm thinking about, as we go back, I want to go back to something we were talking about earlier, where we talked about the light, or the love, excuse me, love. And I'm reminded in Ezekiel, one of my favorite chapters is in Ezekiel 20, uh, where the Father's talking to, you know, the account is of Ezekiel writing about how I brought you out of Egypt, and you brought their idols with you, and I swore my hand, I raised my hand. And so the demonstration of loyalty, which right. we confuse with love. And I look at ex, uh, Ezekiel 20 and I see this constant reiteration of I, I raised my hand and I took an oath. I'm loyal. I'm loyal. I'm loyal. And so when we see Yeshua coming to repair the breach, to restore the covenant, to restore creation, we see the demonstration of loyalty that the father had, and when he promised to Abraham that Israel would be a light for the nations, and we understand now being grafted in, 
that that loyalty is extended to our generation and every generation. Amen. We have to kind of go back and see how it was implied, not this this emotional Jesus loves me kind of thing, uh, which, which he does. Don't misunderstand what I'm saying, but we have to put it in the context of a king being loyal to his subjects, and he has to repair the temple in order to dwell amongst what he has created. And that's, folks, when you follow this along and you stay with us from week to week, uh, we're going to really, really challenge a lot of the thinking that we've had now for 2,000 years because we really need to see the loyalty aspect of what our creator is doing and the promises he made and how he is fulfilling them, even in our day, which is chaotic and crazy, but no different than the time when the ancients were coming out of Egypt or when they nailed him to a tree. So we really need to put in the con into it's, it's kind of like, I mean, we nailed the creator to a tree. How, <laughs> how, how insane was the world then? Yeah, no, nothing changes. It's <laughs> chaos from chaos to chaos, which we probably will get into into that more next week. You know, just the the uh, the disorder and chaos of the universe, and how a temple was something that always brought order. So we, you know, the, the covenant is absolutely essential. Uh, you, you know, you choose either to be in the covenant or not. It's it's your choice. And the idea of the of the temple, I, I want to make mention here because it's not just a building; right. it has multiple meanings and layers. So. The very first temple was actually the cosmos, the entirety of the cosmos, because what is a temple in its basic understanding? It is the place of the presence of God. It is the place where he dwells and sets himself up in the midst of his people. So initially, the cosmos represented the temple. And in terms of covenant, we could argue that even Genesis 1 Bereshit um, bara, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth was seen as a preamble to a covenant. And interestingly, as well, the temple in Jerusalem was actually called the heavens and the earth. And you'll find in the ancient Near, Near East world that all their temples had, you know, used earth and heaven and sky and all kinds of, of terms like that. They all saw it the same way. They always would build a temple to restore order after, say, kings went to battle. So temples were the place in which order was established and where the king ruled from. And so we're going to, as we get, get into Genesis, we're going to see that same pattern pay, uh, played out. Well, we see the, we see it in, in, in the Exodus story. I mean, we see that the tabernacle was constructed because there had to be a measure of order brought to this, this journey that would have been 11 days long, but ended up being 40 years long. But we see that the centerpiece of what the children of Israel were expected to do was to prepare the tabernacle. And that's what happened. And they took that tabernacle everywhere they went so that there's great importance in understanding the temple. Uh, and I will just throw in here the temple in time and the temple out of time. Yeah. Because all of those things are relevant. And we're going to be talking about this. And uh, folks, we're, we're kind of throwing a little bit of information at you. Uh, which might seem a little convoluted, but if you follow along with us, you're going to find that a lot of the thing. you know, it, I asked somebody today, when God placed Adam into the temple, how often do you see in your head a giant hand putting a man in a garden? And his <laughs> answer was, that's exactly what I see. And those are the kinds of things 
that we need to get away from because the reality of the situation was perhaps God placed Adam into a position, not right. necessarily a place. Exactly. And that goes back to what I was talking about earlier. Everything's about function. It's not about substance. It's about function. So what was the purpose and function of Adam being in the garden? We, we always have to look at everything from that perspective because that is the perspective of the ancient world. And that kind of is a little upside down from how we look. And so the temple, you know, the, the, the structure of the temple required people to serve in it right. <laughs> for, the, for what purpose? To bring the people near to God. Again, he was, that was where he dwelled. How, how do, do we approach? And so the purpose of the people who were mediators was to bring the people into the presence of God. And there was, of course, a protocol and a way that it was done. You just didn't walk into the presence of God because you felt like it. Now, I'm not saying you can't approach the Lord each day in prayer. That's not what I'm talking about. Right, right, right. So, we're, we're talking about the basics and understanding how things were done. In fact, you know, we, 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 when we look at the very creation of Eve, if you will, and then we follow that up with a pattern in Leviticus 13, the high priest had to be married. He had to have a wife. She had to be a virgin. And so we see that parallel uh, happening earlier in the garden story. And so we need to kind of meld the two together because what they're doing in Leviticus, according to what God commanded them to do, is not different than what he was doing in the garden. And we need to make sure the two of them fit, and we'll see that pattern throughout the scriptures. Uh, it's it's everywhere. It is. It is. And so that, I mean, that is one of the purposes of this program, is to bring people foundational material and to give you the big picture so that yes. you can take these principles and concepts, and then as you're reading whatever particular part in the Bible because everybody's sort of drawn to different places and has a different understanding. God's given every single person a kind of piece of the temple, a living stone, as you will. And so if we can step back, see the big picture, then you can take that, that information and apply it to what you're studying because there's things you're, I can't study everything, neither can Jeff. And so everybody, you know, everyone has their place in the wall things that they've looked at, things that they understand that God has shown them specifically. So we just want to aid aid the folks as they are doing their own studies and to have sort of a wider understanding. You know, the reality is in the ancient world, we don't have, you know, all the information we need. We don't have a dictionary that explains right. symbols. Now, let me look up what that symbol means. Right, right, right. So, <laughs> I it, tried. It's not there. <laughs> not there. Maybe someday we'll write one, right? <laughs> <laughs> but it required, you know, there are great scholars uh, have done a lot of work. Sometimes scholars are unable to make the connections or help people sort of in a more, uh, how should I put it, personal, practical application way. They tend to be outside the mainstream and not your average everyday person is going to pick up some of these books. So I think if we can kind of be a bridge between that scholarship and he, and we know that some of the scholars don't even believe in messiah so you right. know that's kind of difficult if we could kind of be a bridge between the folks who really don't have a lot of time per se or the expertise and 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 connect the two you know maybe uh, we can really open the door there and we're we're coming up on the end of this week's program but I want to leave you with a thought 
in that the very first thing that's going to happen when the king returns is the building of a temple, which is representative of chaos being ended and the authority of the kingdom of, of our great God being established in the earth. And it starts yeah. with the temple. And so Dina and I are going to stay on this temple concept for a few weeks as we do what we want to do. And hopefully you folks will come along with us. Dina, we're just about out of time. Uh, you Any last words? Well, uh, I hope the folks will stay with us and, uh, you know, and, and grow here and, and really solidify their foundation and th- so that they can build upon that. And hopefully through this, we'll help the folks understand the various concepts and terms and symbols and patterns, etc. And uh, all of this is really, again, about building the kingdom of heaven. And we'll see you guys next week. Thanks for joining. Bye-bye. Shalom. Shalom. Shalom.